Now is the time for the leader to qualify. Oof, 23 minutes. Okay, I'm going to try and... I'm going to do... Huh? Ready? That's been recorded. Okay, Hi, again. I'm Abby. I'm a compulsive overeater recovering bulimic. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so humbled to be here. I love this meeting. Um, thank you, Tammy, for asking me. Um, I just get nervous because this is such an important meeting to me in my recovery. And I just have to use the principle of honesty and say that I had to take a beta blocker <laughs> so I don't get a panic attack because that's happened before when I've led in the past. And uh, I was sharing last night that like panic attacks are a sign of my recovery, I just want to say, because it means I'm feeling the feelings and not completely numb, which is what it looked like for a long time, actually. Um, and yeah, I, I was also just like the miracles of this program. I was just recalling like, so I was thinking about this meeting when I first came in I came in in January 2005, and I think I like looked at the schedule wrong, and I walked in to the log cabin on a Sunday morning. And what happened was, like, 100 AA members stopped when I was speaking and looked at me. And I, like, was a scared little mouse, and I ran to the back where there was a kitchen, and there was another girl who was there who had also thought the OA meeting was there. And she's like, I heard about this meeting on Sunday, in Beverly Hills and Roxbury Park and like because that woman happened to be there I went to Serenity Sunday and that's my journey in Overeaters Anonymous continued and I didn't get scared away by accidentally walking into a giant AA meeting so that's just like one of the small things I'm able to see now in the 17 and a half years I've been in program is God working in my life um, but for the people listening to the podcast and I love the podcast I work abroad a lot and I can't always get to meetings with my schedule and I would listen to the podcast still I was abroad most of last year I would get on my knees in the morning and do my prayers because I could do that and I would listen to the podcast as I got ready and it just gave me like an injection of God before I started my day and just a reminder like I'm not in charge God is um, and I'm not even in charge of this lead God is so I just want to say that and I'll do the classic what it was like what happened what it's like now um even though some of you know my story, but um, for the people who don't and listening. So what it looked like for me, and this is just my story. I'm going to try not to do a trauma log <laughs> to get to recovery. Um, but uh, my story and what it looked like is there was compulsion from the jump. Um, and there was a war on my compulsion from the very beginning in my household. So the first thing we were at war at was my thumb sucking. And uh, that was a huge problem. And I thus was a huge problem because of that. Um, and I've now, I'm now it's funny because like the huge like restriction of like don't do that led to me thumb sucking by the way until I was 32 years old so huh, jokes on them <laughs> um, is when I finally put that down but um, I just needed it I needed the self soothing um, the next thing that was wrong with me is what I heard was when the hair pulling started in when I was seven and I started pulling out my eyelashes and eyebrows and that made me incredibly wrong very very wrong <laughs> and there was a war on that there was an incredible amount of messaging on my physicality on how i looked like an alien i was a cancer patient like all of this messaging to try and get me to stop not maybe the best way to do that um but it also started the trek to therapist really young it was seven when i went but like then going to therapist after therapist after therapist to try and fix me and none of them can fix me and my little brain was like oh, i'm so screwed up that not even any therapist can fix me so so much messaging around my physicality and how it's wrong and how I'm wrong and defective. 
I picked up the food as another tool. I think I always had it, but like around puberty is when it started showing up. And it was like what I knew to do to deal with feelings and scariness, uh, any feeling, happy, sad. Although in my family, the therapists were always like, I was stressed out or not stressed out. It was like a binary. There weren't any other feelings. <laughs> stress and not stress. So to deal with that stress, um, I just remember, and can we mention food in this meeting? Okay. okay. I just remember like coming home from school, getting a loaf of bread and a brick of cheese and butter and just making grilled cheeses and watching TV until the key in the door. And I could tell what the evening was going to look like by hearing the footsteps and the key in the door. So I had to like brace myself for the, whatever hurricane was coming in. Um, and then, uh, I, and also too, like I grew up in Chicago and in high school, like big feelings in high school, I had no way to deal with that. I would come home, take the L home, stop at the convenience store, get two big bags of Flaming Hot Cheetos and then eat the first one on the walk home and then the second one in front of the TV and my fingers were so dyed red that people would make fun of me in high school for having red fingers. I'm like, well, I like it. Fun. They're good. And addictive. Those are not, that's not a food I touch today. Anyway. Fast forward to college where I, um, I'm a very competitive person and I wasn't getting the attention from boys that my friends were. Um, and by the way, I wasn't that heavy. I look back at pictures and right, that's, I'm like, oh, that poor girl, she didn't really look fat. Oh, so I just have so much compassion for her. But in college, I was like, I got to get this weight off. So then compulsive exercise, bulimia, stints with anorexia. Um, but I never thought I had a problem because the people around me in my environment were way worse. And they were getting a lot of attention for having way worse eating disorders. So I was like, I'm just, you know, doing what I need to do. Commercial diet program, I think number two, because I'd done it as a kid. I got put on diets a ton. Um, and then when I moved from school uh, to New York, I moved to New York City for this big job. I was 21 years old, it was three weeks out of college, and I had inter I'm one of those people who always knew what I wanted to do, and I had this really big job, I had no tools. Huge pressure, lots of yelling, crazy clients, but like at the top of the industry that I work in, I was this like little assistant getting like in this wild world, and what I knew to do was to go to the kitchen on Wednesday for bagel day, like if I got yelled at, was to go fetch the Diet Coke for my boss, but then also a bagel and cream cheese for me. And I would just do that like seven times a day. So in three months of living in Manhattan, I gained 30 pounds. Shocker. Uh, but my denial was strong. I was using other things to deal with like the shame. Shame is like, shame is the thing I binge on the most. And that is what I'm really working on now is like putting down shame uh, around anything and everything. There's no need for shame. So in order to not deal with the shame of having gained weight, I just was in denial. I'm like, I don't have a full length mirror because it's a New York apartment. So I could only see from the head up. And my clothes were tight because the dryer had shrunk them. So this is like the craziness of the disease. I love it. I mean, it's just, it's very cunning, baffling, and powerful, but so clever. Um, and so then I moved to L.A. in 2004, and the beautiful people around me, again, my competitiveness kicked in, and I wanted to look like these people, and I thought in order to be successful in my job and get the X, Y, and Z, um, I needed to really this time like double down and buckle down and get my body to look the way it needed to look. And then nothing was working. None of the tricks were working. The bulimia wasn't working. The overexercise wasn't working. It just, and this is God, right? It brought me to my knees. Nothing was working. Um, I would go to the commercial, I went to another, the commercial design program for the third time. 
and many people have heard this story, it was January 2005 because my New Year's resolution was to lose the weight. And I went to this commercial diet program and I remember going to the weigh-in on Beverly and I was doing such crazy things with food. I was restricting, I would exercise in the morning, restrict till like noon, have a salad. And then like in my next crazy job that I moved out here for, the like track to the candy room would start in the afternoon when the pressure got high. And I would just go and grab my peanut butter and a little, little Dixie cup. But I would do that like on, on the regular. And then not eat dinner because I couldn't because of the numbers I was trying to hack. But then at like 10 o'clock at night, I would stir fry frozen vegetables and add half a bottle of butter spray. Like that's the crazy it was getting to. <laughs> so shocker, when I would step on the scale on a Saturday morning, it wouldn't be like, you gained a pound and seven ounces. And I wanted to deck her for giving me this bad news, but then I wanted to kill myself. But I didn't know that. I didn't know that's what the darkness that was happening in my head. I just would go out afterwards, and it was super social at the time. I've hence learned that I'm an extroverted introvert. I'm not actually an extrovert. I need time to come back and recharge, and this is all gifts of recovery. Um, but I would go out, and I'd go and scan the room, and it was the shame brain of having gained weight and, like, who is prettier than me? Who's, who's skinnier than me? Who am I, like, at the competition? Like, I wasn't present because, like, I couldn't. That was the only thing that mattered. Like, I just so much growing up of, like, you're either the best and not even the worst. It's like, you may as well kill yourself. You're the best and that's it. <laughs> that's, there's no other option. And so it's a, the, the exhaustion, the mental exhaustion of constantly monitoring to see where I stood in life and what my worth was compared to others gift of this program. I do not do that at all. I do never compare myself to anybody else. Um, anyway, so that diet program wasn't working. I was like, I had to do something. I got to rest my body <laughs> to the place it needs to be. And my, another God shot, my binge buddy in college, she was on the East Coast and she'd been telling me for like six months, you got to go to this place called Overeaters Anonymous. You got to go to this place called Overeaters Anonymous. And I was like, I'm not going to this place called Overeaters Anonymous because <laughs> it has this terrible name, bad PR. <laughs> Um, but then she's like, there's people who are skinny, because she knows how to get me. <laughs> so that's when I decided to look it up and walked into the log cabin and accidentally an AA meeting, and then the rest is history. And I just, I don't even know how to even speak on, um, on how much this program and this fellowship and these miraculous steps have given to me. I mean... I was reading uh, A Vision for You in the Big Book yesterday, and just like, and it so resonates with me and what I'm going through today of like, the craziness, the pure amount of just intuition and faith for Bill Wilson to be so desperate for something new when he had exhausted all of the things before, to call Dr. Bob when he was like on the verge and like just the two of these people connecting and on faith deciding they didn't have a fellowship yet, they were doing it purely on faith and then turned into this, you know, and the one thing they knew they were super certain of is that you need to have a spiritual experience. And like, I certainly, if someone had told me when I walked into the rooms in 2005 that the answer to my weight problem was a spiritual experience, I would have been like, you're out of your effing mind. So, but it's been the case. So I came into the rooms and I couldn't really grasp that. I was told to act as if, get a sponsor, go to six meetings. By my second meeting, I heard, I heard what I needed to hear. I started shaking, in fact. And I was like, what is this happening to me? And I was feeling starting to finally come up in my numbness. Never cried before. The only times I ever cried were in movies. 
and like something welling up. I'm like, Elise, what's happening? Is this crying? And so I was like, something's happening here. I think I should stay. So then I found a sponsor, and she's like, you know what? Let's just put the food down so life can come up. And we did a food plan versus the abstinence, red, yellow, green light list, not just with the foods that are alcoholic on my red light list, but the behaviors. Because for me, it's so much about like the thinking and the behaviors that lead to that, like standing up, not, you know, I, I, um, the three meals a day, the beginning and two snacks, and my food plan has changed over the years for health reasons and all that food stuff, and that's annoying, but my abstinence has never changed. And my abstinence was truly the antidote to what I faced growing up. It was um, no binging, no purging, no compulsive exercise, and working the program to the best of my ability. And that's super gentle, and that's all I need for my brain to combat the shame is just this loving gentleness and like not punitive and not with the whipping stick and it worked and I was able to put down the food and then was the hard part of starting to deal with the feelings that came up and uh, I didn't get physical recovery for like three years because and I kept coming back so I was feeling better and the reason I did that is because I was learning these new tools to deal with life writing um, Connection. Connection was the thing. The connection in the meetings, getting honest with other people, seeing the nodding of the heads. Oh, yeah, you're not a piece of, you know what, I do that too. Or, like, I have those feelings too. So that connection was, like, filling me up in a way. And, like, like I feel it here being in the rooms with all of you guys. Like, look, Zoom is incredible and it has connected so many people. But there's nothing like the charge or the energy in the room, the way that fills you up. It's just, it's. It, that's the spiritual experience for me and acting as if with the God stuff. I had a God growing up. It was really like a storytelling God. Uh, it had nothing to do with my practical everyday life. And it was when my spiritual experience was about three years in, I was using the tools, I was working the steps and I wanted to get some physical recovery. And my sponsor said, ask people who have what you want. So I started serving the people who had what I wanted and <laughs> The answer that came back was, I get on my knees in the morning. Like, but that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I'm like, and I was raised a Jew. Ah, that's weird. Um, but, you know, I'm willing to do what you guys tell me to do. So I started getting on my knees. Literally, like, I will roll out of bed onto my knees. Like, it's not pretty. And to say the first three steps and the serenity prayer and the um, third step prayer, and, and I'd already been working with outside help, but it wasn't really sticking. That's the spiritual experience. All of a sudden, it started working. And I, you know, I lost the weight, um, which is a reminder to me, like, this is a spiritual program, spiritual solution. So, cut to, what it looked like after that? I'm just trying to see how, so nine minutes. Okay. Well, <laughs> thank God I have this framework, but when I put the food down, some other stuff came up, right? The whack-a-mole game. Toxic relationships, alcohol, my workaholism, a constant, um, codependency. So, fine. It's what I needed to do. And, like, it's been in the last 17 and a half years a slow peeling of all of these addictions and compulsions until about year 10. And I'd heard this before, and I was always incredibly resentful for anybody who said this, that you're a newcomer until you're 10. And I was like, no, 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 no. I work a strong program. I do a lot of service. That's not true. And then at 10, talk about panic attacks as recovery, my life exploded. Like, full-on exploded. I got fired. We all did from, like, in the crazy regime changes in my industry, which was, like, totally destabilizing. I didn't have this 
thing to fill my life 24-7 and give me that, like, a rush. The adrenaline and cortisol is a drug of, like, my job. I was having panic attacks. I got a DUI. And uh, my relationship with my parents sort of exploded. Oh, and, a, and another toxic relationship that I didn't want, by the way. I'm like, I know by now the, my patterns. And then this guy just I was working with, and it just wouldn't go away. I'm like, something's wrong. Something is very wrong. Um, so I went to outside help again. I've been on and off. This is, this is when God, this is a spiritual experience. This is the time God was ready for me to deal with this stuff. And I've heard in, like other modalities, like trauma comes up when you feel safe enough to deal with it. And I was just in a good place and safe and stable place and had enough resources that like what happened was, talk about like the shaking of the chair when I was in that away meeting, frozen feelings like full on exploded. Talk about not crying, I was explosively crying. I had an incident with my mother, they'd come to Palm Springs, like a rejection as one happens, and then I went to the car with my sister and she was totally alarmed because she's not good with feelings either, shocker from where we came from, but uh, she said, maybe you should go to therapy. So I got some outside help and I was able to see that no matter if I was compulsive or addictive as a child, no child deserves to be spoken to that way. That is not okay. That is a result of, and the reason you were going to those things is because it was scary in your household. Um, you had a mother, you have a mother with an undiagnosed mental illness. We just didn't have that language. Um, mental illness and alcoholism, although the alcohol actually helped turn down the dial. So I was grateful for it when she got into it later. Um, and so it was this journey of really coming to a new understanding of shame. And then I, that was the thing that I was binging on because that's where I came from. And uh, just to recalibrate why I was going to these compulsions, this is just, you know, what the life that I decided and God decided to give me. And I just, I don't self-soothe internally. Thank you. I need something outside of myself. I think about it like a, some cars are automatic and some cars are <laughs> stick. And I'm a stick car and i got to do it myself, right? So if I get activated... I go to meditation, I go to another person, I know, uh, I breathe all these things, like, and most of the tools of this program, which will regulate me again, um, and I went to another program that specifically deals with growing up in an alcoholic or otherwise dysfunctional home, and I work the steps there, and, like, for me, it's all interconnected. Like, I, the food was just the first thing that brought me to my knees enough to start exploring all of this stuff. Um, but thank God it did. Like, how lucky am I that I came into the rooms at 24, I'm 41 years old now, and I go through life with, like, this framework. And, like, I was talking to somebody else at a meeting yesterday, and, like, especially with the pandemic and even years before that, just the craziness out in the world, like, I would be dead. If I didn't have this framework for living and these tools, I would not be here anymore. I know that for sure. I wouldn't be able to handle it. I would have gone into all the things. Um, and I wouldn't be here. But because of all this uncovering, in fact, what's happened is I left those toxic environments. I've gone to another two programs to deal with the toxic relationship stuff and the codependency and the hair pulling. They go together. And so I'm working four programs, but I only work the steps actively in one because I don't need to do the overworking anymore. And it's gone to a place where I have uncovered enough to get to my true self. <laughs> I hate saying that, but it's, it's true. Like, I'm that little, I feel like I'm that little kid again who gets to listen. Like, what do you need today? What do you want to do today? I'm going to Disneyland after this. Like, 
That's what my little inner child wants to do, go to Disneyland. So I'm doing that. I um, now work freelance because I do not, I'm not attracted to toxic environments anymore. Like I was celebrated in my field for working for quite literally the most famous terrible people. Um, at any time there was a terrible person, I would get a call like, hey, you want this job? Uh, and I don't do that anymore. <laughs> and the reason I could do that is because I had all of these little things to turn down the volume and take the edge off. And I was celebrated for being tough as nails. I wasn't tough as nails. I was numb. Um, so now that I'm no longer numb, I don't want to go into those environments with people who are abusive. Um, I have tools because I work in Hollywood and I'm going to encounter a lot of people with a lot of personality. But, like, I don't run there. I'm not running to them anymore. Um, and because of that, I'm freelance. I get to be super creative. I'm moving into writing because of truly this program. Like, I learned to write here, and that's been an evolution. Um, and just how telling my story helps is of being of service to myself and to others. It's like the thing that fills me up. Like, truly, all I care about is being of service. Don't care about the outside stuff. My life is totally ruled by God. All I do is look out all day long. Like, I say because I'm in a place of like a lot of fear about when the other job is coming and I'm in the mix for one I don't know if it's going to happen but guess what not my business it's God's right I put it in my God box um, and I just wake up every morning and I do the knees thing and I do the praying and when I have time I do writing every day I meditate every day I connect with fellows every day and right now I'm in a scary place this unknown never would have been able to be freelance and deal with uncertainty and financial insecurity prior to these rooms but, like, I'm doing a 90 and 90 because I'm just, I need that injection every day of, like, hey, God's got it. And sure enough, last couple weeks, jobs have been coming in, and, you know, God's got it. Whether or not I get this one, I have to go to Toronto for three months starting next week. Doesn't matter. God's got it. And that's how I live my day. And one of the best things, and I'll wrap up with this, is I ask God every morning now, like, allow me to see your signs. And allow me to experience joy today. Because it's a joyful existence here. Like, I, I don't want to stay in the dark place anymore. Like, I like showing up, being present, being connected. I mean, I wish all of you guys could share things. I want to hear what you guys have to say. Like, that for me fills me up. That's what I look forward to is just connection. And, yeah, it's just a miracle. This program is an absolute miracle. These steps are a miracle. Thank God for Bill W. and Dr. Bob and everybody who came after. I'm just, it might, I'm, I'm here because of them. So, I'll end there. Thanks for letting me share. Uh, this is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leaders are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Hi. Um, at what point in your recovery did you realize you were having a spiritual experience? Thank you for asking that, and I'll repeat the question. At what point in my recovery did I realize I was having a spiritual experience? Um, the, when I explained about, like, finally getting on my knees and it working with my nutritionist, and that sort of, like, gelling, that was crazy. Um... And then also, too, the thing that really built my spiritual experience sort of muscle and, like, God working in my life is, like, looking in hindsight at the way my life had sort of taken these twists and turns. Because it, for at least the first five years, I was still in very, like, go-getter, type A, overachiever mode of, like, I'm going to make it happen. I pull myself up from the bootstraps. 
And so many times what's happened is, and I see it and I saw it in hindsight, like I had this plan, the plan exploded, something else happened and I'm diverted this way and it was better than I ever could have imagined. And then that happens so many times and in such radically dramatic ways. I don't know if I'm allowed to share this if it's outside issues, but I have to because it's such a god shot. So when I left the studio system in 2016, I went out on my own. It was really scary, but it gave me the time and resources to do a lot of this trauma work. And like, and I wasn't going to the food, which is a miracle. No body obsession. Miracle. But I was feeling feelings. And I got into a situation where I was in a work situation that turned super toxic. And I was like, uh, I don't do this anymore. And I decided and they wouldn't pay me my worth. They were treating me really badly. And even though I was in a really precarious financial situation, I was like, I have to remove myself from this. Like, this is not what I do anymore. This is recovery. So I'm like, all right, I have to go do this other thing. And if something doesn't come along, I'll go back into the studio system, I guess. Two weeks later, an email comes across my desk through a networking group that I'm in. That's like, oh, we need a producer on this show. And it's called Raised by Wolves. I was literally spent the last three years investigating how I'd been raised by wolves. (laughs) And I'm like, I just started laughing. I'm like, God, thank you, God. Sometimes you need signs that are about, you know, as subtle as a sledgehammer. So that's how I see God working in my life. And that builds my spiritual experience. Thank you so much. Could you talk about how I just feel? Like, you especially in the context of the things you experience in your past. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, How to deal with self-righteous anger. Um, The thing that I have really had to come to terms with about self-righteous anger is that I have to feel it first before I can let go of the anger. So I have a whole process in what I do. Again, and this has to do with shame. Like, I, I just, I'm having a feeling, right? There's a reason why I'm getting angry at something, right? There's something going on. And for me, that's an indication that, like, Something's not right. Um, and so, but I do the work and I do it on my end and I don't bring it out into the world is my recovery. So there's just a lot of work that I do to process and just am really gentle for it to pass. For example, like as I've been doing all this work around what happened to me as a child, like some of you guys know, if you had heard me share five, seven years ago when I was deep in like figuring out what was ha- had happened to me and I was gaslit my entire childhood to think that I was the problem, I was mad. And I'm like, I deserve to be angry about that. And so it was just a matter of like doing the work to process it. And seven years later, because it's taken that long, I think that I have genuine compassion and forgiveness for my parents that they did the best that they could. And whenever I heard people say that before when I was in it, I was like, they can go at themselves. Um, and so it's just being super gentle with myself and not bringing shame into the equation as I do the work to process. So, uh, how did you go through? Can you talk about self-acceptance while you're doing the whack-a-mole? <laughs> Thank you. Could you repeat that? Yeah, can I talk about self-acceptance while I was doing the whack-a-mole? I think my disease was very cunning at the time. That, like, I didn't really have a lot of shame about that per se of while I was doing it. I didn't think it was a problem. I just thought, again, the food and the body stuff and t- taking care of that until, like, something explosive would happen. And then I'm like, oh... This is a problem. This is making my life. So until something made my life unmanageable, I just really was like, it's fine. Right? So, like, until a toxic relationship truly blew up. Like, I had in the back of my head, my poor sponsor, had me 
had to listen to me talking about this guy for like three years. And then, and then finally it exploded in such a hurtful, spectacular way that I like had to examine that. And then, and then same thing like with the alcohol, same thing with a lot of stuff. Like I'm only going to, I say this all the time, I'm only going to change my behavior when it's too painful not to. So that's how it happens. It's like, I'm really not going to do it unless my life's unmanageable. And so, and now in terms of the whack-a-mole stuff, because I'm not perfect. I don't put down everything perfectly. Like I still take compulsive bites. Even getting up this morning and coming here and putting on the dress, I was like, ooh, a little tighter than last time. Not loving that. And it's like, all right, I'm a compulsive eater. Sometimes I take extra bites. What I don't do is binge on the shame. That for me right now, that's the thing. In my head, I do not binge on shame. Thank you. Um, how, what do you do when, if you lapse into feeling like a victim? great question. What do I do if I lapse into feeling like a victim? Well, what happens is, is I start feeling bad. Like I start going to the dark place if I stay in the victim place. I don't like being in the dark place. So what I have to do, my job is to stay sober enough to understand that I'm going, like what, what voice is talking to me in my head? And that's really important now. It's like, what voice am I listening to? And if I'm listening to the voice of like I'm such a victim this happened to me I'll always be this way like I can't fix my nervous system fuck you guys for creating a nervous system that doesn't work properly which I can go down and stay you know um I don't feel good and I don't want to not feel good so then I use all the resources that I've been taught to do in these rooms to like act as if act as if I want to get out of it like I don't have to want to get out of it because I can feel very justified being in it but like smart feet just like get to my therapist get to whatever meeting i need to treat to deal with that and like connect with fellows and just say that nausea i'm like this is where i'm at and then you know god's timing it ends up lifting but i do the work thanks yes joe how did your program change when you started sponsoring what a great question (laughs) from my sponsee how did my program change when i started sponsoring that has been one of the biggest, greatest gifts of this program. Um, it's what fills me up the most. It is being of service to my sponsees because it keeps me accountable. I mean, and that, and I'm so nervous. It's so helped me also to lose my perfectionism. Um, and this thing I didn't have before called boundaries um, that I didn't have to be perfect. I didn't have to know it all. I'm nobody's teacher, I'm nobody's mother, I'm nobody's therapist. I show up and I give what was given to me. I share my experience, strength, and hope. And if I don't have any to share, then I send, you know, a sponsor to say, hey, go find somebody who has that. But that connection, of that's the, the vision for you stuff that Bill and Dr. Bob, it's that connection that it has led to my spiritual experience. Because that is what keeps me not only tethered and accountable, but totally filled up in my sponsees. Seeing them flourish in their lives, and then they go have sponsees that have flourishing lives and recovery. I'm like, ah! And my heart wants to explode. So it's the best. Thank you for asking. What time do we stop? We got time? Hi. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, dealing with resentment when it comes up? Like, you know, you know, how do you 
how do you direct it, or do you just let it wash over you, and then and then what that process is like for you? Yeah, thank you for asking. What do I do with resentment? Oh. I mean, again, I still have a hard time feeling big feelings. I don't want to feel them. I want to get out of them. I can intellectualize out of them, but I've learned that if I don't actually sit with them, they don't go away. Um, my outside help says, like, if you actually feel a feeling for 90 seconds, that's all it is. If you can tolerate it for 90 seconds without intellectualizing and doing all the things, feel it in your body. And that's still very hard for me. 90 seconds is still very hard. And so, um, what I, like last year when I was working, I was working in South Africa and I was dealing with some big personalities who were acting very abusively. And I was trying all the things to try and manage it and deal with it. But like, ultimately, none of my business and I had to deal with my resentment. Because I was bringing all sorts of like passive aggressive, like I can, like I now know all my, because of all the inventories in other places and here and like one of my things is like manipulation and passive aggressive comments and like I can shame someone right back like subtly and that's triggering for someone else. Like no, let's feel the resentment, let's do the work, then I don't have to keep engaging in these dynamics where we're just creating more resentment with each other. This is just a specific example that came to mind. <laughs> um, and so I just went, again, to all of the outside help that I had. Not outside. I didn't go to the person. I did the work myself. So much writing. So much getting quiet. For me, moving meditation, especially for resentment, is a really big part of my process. I do a lot of yoga, and that helps me move through the feelings and, like, just get some space from, like, the pure rage and like yeah so that really helps me pass through it um and i just i'm doing those you know i'm doing those many four steps or ten steps and like bringing it to another person so i can like i'm doing an eight step right now in another program it's like all right i talk to my sponsor is this something i bring to the other person if there's my part in it to make the amends or is that like i write the letter and don't send it because that would cause me more harm or is it a living amends so you know again this stuff takes work and so that's what I do, just sort of sort it out, and then it's got time when that, the, the, the rest of the feelings dissipate. But usually not that long after I do the work, except for my parents. Anybody else? Jeff? So you're good the question. How do you, when you tell people, yeah, you're still here for more than 10 years or less, how do you convince them otherwise? Um, you yeah. yeah, when people said that uh, you're a newcomer until you're 10 years or less, how do I convince myself? Well, I, I mean, I think I just didn't care what people said. I, I just was like, you're an egotistical maniac to the people <laughs> who said that. So, and like, I'll prove you wrong because, again, very anti-authority type, per, type A person. Um, but... I don't know. My feeling is if you stick around long enough and you're doing the work, this is going to happen anyway. So, like, may as well be prepared. <laughs> I've just been seeing it a lot, so. <laughs> or maybe it's not. Everyone has their own thoughts. Um, what's your relationship with your family like now? And is there a particular tool or step? Yeah. Yeah. How long do you have for that one? <laughs> uh, <laughs> what's my relationship with my family like today? It's a miracle. I'm in contact with them. But it took me going no contact 
to reset our relationship. And that was with a lot of outside help to uh, guide me in that. Okay, five minutes. Um, so why, because it was too much, while I was, it, the dissonance of, as I was learning what had happened to me and being in contact with them, I would go to see them and like the rage and the activation was so much. And I was also walking through some crazy personal stuff at the time of like, I can't even get into it about one of my bosses was going down and I was participating in that and I was like seeing why I work for him and because directly because I can tolerate being screamed at all the time because of where I was raised and it was my grandfather too bigger personality but like he was a huge larger than life personality like but like flip tables and that kind of a person but like I was his golden child so I it was funny like how I could equate that for working for this person I worked for where I kind of he would rage and all the things but I could be the golden child and it was as I was seeing all of this stuff I was this wild I was also super activated like ugh so then I ended up having to switch outside help and she guided me through how to go no contact with uh, and I was going now by this point I think to the other Tulsa program for dealing with this issue and also by the way not going to the food miracle 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 um, and when I went no contact, I went no contact for six months. And I said to them, like, here is what I need. This is for myself. I was like, here are my diagnoses. Go take it to the therapist you and see every once in a while when something goes catastrophically wrong. And, like, talk to her about it. But we're going to go no contact. And after six months, they reached out. They're like, can we have contact? And I said, yes, but let's do a summit. So I asked them, and my parents, good for them, right? Especially for my mother with her mental illness to engage with this. Like, a lot of people wouldn't. I said, my therapist and your therapist are going to talk, and then if you guys want to come to L.A., we'll do family therapy for a week. And they showed up for that. And that is huge. That is incredible and incredibly generous, and I know how challenging it was for all of us. And that was in 2018, and it's been a slow climb back into contact, but the contact is so boundaried, I can't even tell you. Like, so boundaried. I don't stay on the phone with them long. I only pick up the phone when I'm in a state where I can stay present and boundaried. Um, and I use a lot of tools afterwards. Visits are very short. Three days max. Um, and, you know, my mother isn't who she was before. She's got a lot of stuff going on. She's, you know, the fire is meditant. So it's been a long road to be able to get to a place where I can be in contact with them or even talk and not get super activated. And that's only in the last couple of months that, like, I can speak to her and I'm just like, eh. But, like, even so, like, I'm going through a hard time, like, uncertain time right now. And I know, like, don't pick up the phone. Because even when I pick up the phone, I have to be so vigilant. Like, she'll project her feelings onto me. She's like, aren't you sad? Aren't you sad and scared? Aren't you sad and scared for what's going on? And I'm like, why don't you ask me how I'm feeling? <laughs> um, and so just say, no, like, be prepared. Because it's little things, but we'll, I'll get off the phone and be like, why am I, like, freaked out? Because she's projecting her feelings onto me, and I'm not a separate person because of her mental illness. Anyway, um, so just, yeah, but now, like, I can talk and just, but again, it's just taking care of myself. What do you need? What do you need? What do you need? What are the tools of this program and all the other modalities? What do you need? And I can go out in the world and interact with anyone. Again, I just don't run to those toxic people anymore. So with that, for two more minutes, quickie. Hi. 
Yeah, thank you for asking that. Do I qualify the rage that I'm uh, talking about as pain? Yeah, absolutely. It's a trigger for, uh, for some pain that I'm feeling. And recognizing that it's actually pain rather than rage or anger or, and it's in it? Yes. Is that like yes, thank you. Part of your recovery and part of the process? Yes, as I've learned in outside health stuff, the rage is just very pain and that it's a grief process. And that's just multi-layered, you know? And sitting in sadness is very uncomfortable. And so it takes a lot for me to access that, but I understand, but it's a, you know, again, it comes with not being in shame. And like, this is the emotion that I'm feeling now. And if I feel that, I'll get to the stuff underneath, you know? And that's, I keep trudging, trudging the road of happy destiny and you doing the work to get to that. And I always ask my therapist, I'm like, so when are we done? <laughs> like, when do we have we excavated it all? And she's like, unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. So, uh, yeah, it's just being patient and uh, God's timing, not mine. Thanks for letting me know.